A common scene in technology companies everywhere. Big conference table with the CTO on one end, developer teams on the other, the showdown. We have an idea, will it get funded? More companies are feeling the pressure to go faster and stay ahead of the competition. Projects that have long timelines or no immediate impact are hard to justify. Datastax is sponsoring a contest with real projects, real money, and real CTOs. If you have a Kubernetes project that needs a database, the winner will get funded with a free year of Datastax Astra. Follow the link in the podcast description to submit your project. It's time to impress the CTO and get your project funded. Eyes glazed over from debugging a remote Kubernetes service? Instead, run your service locally in your favorite debugger and instantly find the problem. Ambassador Telepresence is the easiest way to debug microservices on Kubernetes. Spend more time fixing problems instead of reproducing them. Ambassador Telepresence is free to use for teams with unlimited developers. Get started today at getambassador.io slash devdiscuss. Educative.io is a hands-on learning platform for software developers. Learn anything from Rust to system design without the hassle of setup or videos. Text-based courses let you easily skim back and forth like a book, while cloud-based developer environments let you get your hands dirty without fiddling with an IDE. Take your skills to the next level. Visit educative.io slash devdiscuss today to get a free preview and 10% off an annual subscription. Get ready to level up at New Relic's virtual event, FutureStack 2021, held May 25th through the 27th. Join your fellow data nerds from around the world to learn, inspire, and rack up experience in 50 interactive sessions, 12 hands-on labs, and a 24-hour hackathon. FutureStack is your cheat code for observability. Engineers from across the industry will lead you through topics like Kubernetes, DevOps strategies, and observability. Then join us to relax with some Minecraft on Nerd Island. Registration is free at futurestack.com. Game on. I think that it would behoove people to learn serverless because it's less to maintain. It's less expensive for many applications. There are certain applications that are massively enabled by this. Welcome to DevDiscuss, the show where we cover the burning topics that impact all our lives as developers. I'm Ben Halpern, a co-founder of Forum. And I'm Jess Lee, also a co-founder of Forum. Today we're talking about serverless and the cloud with Erica Windisch, Principal Software Engineer at New Relic and founder of IOPipe, and Yan Tui, AWS serverless hero and principal consultant at The Burning Monk. Thank you both so much for joining us. Of course, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So Erica, can you kick us off by telling us a little bit about your development background? Oh, wow. You know, I started developing in notebooks, physical notebooks off of, uh, you know, manuals of like Commodore 64, so, which I didn't own. <laughs> and, you know, for magazines, I was interested in the concept of programming and wanted to program and I wanted a computer. And that's how I convinced my parents to get me one. Started reading into books like Applied Cryptography and doing some programming on my own in high school. And I started with a company called Cloud Scaling, where I became a maintainer of some OpenStack projects. And I then became one of the early engineers at Docker before starting up IOPipe, which was acquired by New Relic last year. Tell us about IOPipe. So IOPipe was a point solution for developers building applications on AWS Lambda. So it was specifically for the serverless applications for observability to, to help developers 
really understand what their application is doing inside that black box so that it's an environment that was you know, harder for users to really get insights into how their application was running after they shipped it. So we wanted users to be able to get not just uses metrics and runtime metrics, but also application metrics so that they could, like being able to know that an error that occurred on a, on a background processing job was for a specific user, right? Or a specific order number, things like that, so that you could aggregate and, and correlate that data together. And at New Relic, now that IOPipe was acquired by them, do you get to continue that work or are you working on other projects? Yes, and <laughs> so I, I do continue working in a different capacity with the serverless team. Um, I work now as an architect with that team, but I'm also now an architect for some other projects, such as our synthetics product, which allows you to do testing of your application, similar to things like Pingdom, right? That's our version of that sort of tool where you can build a script that tests your service based on its APIs, so that external behavior. In sort of describing everything IOPipe is doing and the work you've progressed to, how much of this would you say is solving problems that were created because of this serverless application concept and it needs an ecosystem around it? Or how much of this is sort of like new things that are enabled in the first place because of serverless. So like how much was like just missing from the serverless ecosystem? Yeah, I think part of it is with serverless wasn't that these were new problems necessarily. I think that what was interesting was that we found that we could deliver value with less noise in serverless because you're mm -hmm. not managing the servers, you're not managing these other infrastructure components. So there is less noise of these other things. And that allows us to focus more on application level value, application level metrics, application level structured logs, for instance, right? Which is what I think is true observability, right? Is being able to have the structured logs in context and correlate it into, yes, metrics, but metrics is one of the least interesting things for me. And it's something like a serverless application. It's how users use the application, what users are doing in it how the thing is breaking, where, where the fault lines are, in context and correlation to the users and their workflows. And I'm sure that really acts in concert with all the observability stuff New Relic does as a whole. It seems like it's all kind of rowing in the same direction. Yeah, generally, this is one of the reasons why I am spending a little bit less time focused specifically on serverless, just because we are all rowing in the same direction. When we were with IOPipe, you know, we had to do things like build a learning system. We had to build our own errors management. We had to build all of these things. And they were kind of table stakes functionality. And now these are also components at New Relic, but they're much larger things with individual teams for everything. So I have to spend more time on more projects with more people. So I, I'm spread a lot more thin. Yeah. can you tell us a bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess I probably didn't start as early as uh, Erica. Um, so I got my first computer in 97 when I was about, what, 15 or 16. And then I went to university, I did my computer science, finished that, and I worked in the investment banking for a few years uh, as engineer. But then uh, I kind of realized uh, pretty quickly that, uh, you know, I'm building stuff that's used by 20 people in the bank. And then there's all these things uh, mm -hmm. that's happening outside this uh, way more interesting. So I left the banking and I went into, I guess, working in the, well, firstly, Facebook games for a few years. Then we all transitioned to 
mobile games because everyone left Facebook to play games on mobile. <laughs> so I've spent most of my career working as a games developer, building backends uh, for various different kinds of uh, social games and been working with AWS for over 10 years now. And the last couple of years, primarily focusing on building things using serverless components, including moving a social network to run pretty much entirely on Lambda, API Gateway, DynamoDB, and so on. And the last couple of years, I've worked for a fair few different companies, all focusing around serverless technologies. I guess nowadays I spend half my time working with Lumigo as a developer advocate. And Lumigo is another troubleshooting platform for serverless applications, probably focusing on more complicated or complete AWS serverless environments where you've got lots of events. And it's not just about API calls, it's a lot of event-driven architecture with events flying into SNS, SQS, EventBridge, triggering Lambda functions and trying to get visibility out of the whole process. And the other half of my time, I work as an independent consultant where I work with uh, companies all around the world to help them adopt serverless technologies to be able to go faster and to deliver more value with uh, less uh, overhead in terms of uh, managing infrastructure. Wow. Going from banking to gaming to now the cloud. What an interesting progression. So you have you were given the title AWS Serverless Hero. Can you tell us more about that and how you became one? Basically, uh, well, Erica is also AWS Hero as well, uh, Serverless Hero. <laughs> so basically, they've got this, uh, I guess, internal committee. As far as I can tell, they meet every quarter. I guess they um, nominate uh, people based on you know, the work that you're doing in the community. I write a lot of content. I guess I publish maybe at this point close to 200 articles on uh, serverless, uh, various different aspects. And I've also done a lot of uh, talks in public. So I guess they probably have seen my content. So someone nominated me in one of these meetings and they decided that we should give uh, Yen, uh, make him a serverless uh, hero. And so since then, every quarter they've announced the new heroes for the different specializations, I guess. They got container heroes, they got the machine learning heroes, um, and also serverless heroes as well. In terms of how they become one, honestly, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think if you, you know, if you write a lot of content, you're contributing to the community uh, through content, through maybe open source contributions, uh, then maybe it's just a matter of time before someone notices uh, what you're doing. And then some of that is always going to be luck that the right person notices what you're doing and nominates you. But being nominated for being a serverless hero doesn't really mean much. Uh, you get a free ticket to reinvent. That's kind mm -hmm. of the, the main perk you get. We, we want to do it because uh, it's a, a new way of doing things that we feel passionate and that we believe in. That's why we do it. Yeah, I would say that the main perk uh, on my side is you know, access to secrets. You know, getting to know you know, things that are happening behind the scenes at AWS services and features that haven't been released yet and which we can't talk about, but we do get to know about them sooner than others. Yeah, we got those uh, briefing meetings uh, where they tell us uh, the roadmap for what's coming up. Uh, that's really cool as well. And can you tell us about the kind of things you're doing as an independent consultant at The Burning Monk? So I work with um, lots of companies, uh, you know, both, uh, I guess, large enterprises. I've done some work with uh, uh, people like Toyota, with uh, DVLA in the UK, uh, also doing some work with uh, a lot of you know, medium, small sized companies uh, you know, who are just taking the first step into the cloud or, you know, or maybe they're migrating from an existing application. There's all kind of different use cases you see now with uh, serverless uh, and being an independent consultant. It's kind of quite nice to see all these different things people are doing. You get a nice uh, broad 
perspective in terms of different contexts people are working with. We've got people doing lots of uh, uh, APIs, so definitely lots of them, but they also see you know, lots of people doing IoT things. Uh, you see people doing lots of uh, big data, machine learning type of work, load with Lambda you know, and the Kinesis, moving data around. So there's some really interesting stuff that's uh, happening out there. And uh, like I said, as a consultant, I mostly work with the lost companies to offer them advice on architecture, providing them with uh, reviews. And occasionally I um, work with clients and help them build a, P a POC. So recently I did a work with uh, one of the clients of mine in the Belgium and uh, they were building a new social network. So I built a backend for them in a couple of weeks using AppSync, which is a GraphQL as a service. Uh, for, on AWS and Lambda and DynamDB, we were able to build something and deploy something to production in just a few weeks. Uh, so it's uh, it's pretty amazing how much work you can get done with uh, just one person uh, when you don't have to worry about infrastructure and all these other things. So cloud, serverless, it's all, you know, sort of words for the concept of somebody else's computer, really. Can we get into a bit of the history of cloud and the beginnings before all of this was maybe a little bit more obvious to some of us? Jan, do you want to start in going back in time a little bit and talking about the beginnings? Yeah, sure. So I guess uh, AWS started what in two thousand four five timeframe when they just had the first services was about what SQS or something like that. When I first got involved with uh, AWS was so two thousand and nine. I was just leaving banking, uh, you know, I was building everything. And we were sitting in these gigantic meetings with like, what, 10, 15 people talking about uh, how we're going to get a new server in three months' times and uh, the different spec and uh, what needs to be installed. And and then uh, the server comes, everyone memorizes the IP address straight away because it's a very memorable event. And then moving to the cloud where, well, you need a new server, just wait five minutes and you've got a new VM running. So that kind of turnaround time becomes... Uh, very, very different. And uh, in the beginning of the cloud, the people talk about uh, OPEX versus uh, CAPEX or operational expenditure versus uh, capital expenditure, where, you know, if you have to run all these giant machines, you have to have a lot of capital to even get started. But the cloud allows you to just rent what you need. So it kind of levels the playing field for a lot of companies to be able to do things that until then, they just won't be able to because they don't have, say, a couple of millions sitting in the bank to be able to afford all these uh, data centers and all this uh, hardware. And uh, as we move towards a higher level of abstraction where, you know, managing service becomes quite difficult and, uh, you know, trying to reliably reproduce the same server setup every single time, that becomes a challenge. And then you see tools come up that kind of help you manage that a little bit better. And then the Docker came around. And around the same time, actually, um, Lambda was announced in 2014, even though when it was uh, first announced, uh, it didn't really do much. Uh, it let you do S3 to trigger a Lambda function. And I think the initial idea was that, well, this is just something that lets you do some, I guess, uh, asynchronous processing for files that you, know, you put into S3. But then when they announced the API gateway integration for Lambda, I think that was 2015 when it did that, that made, I guess, serverless a real thing a real tangible thing that people can use to build real applications that can do a lot of things. Uh, and since then, as they, and as they add more and more triggers, more and more ways to integrate the Lambda function tightly with the rest of AWS, serverless become more of an integral part for a lot of people from building APIs to building big data pipelines to building IoT uh, systems or uh, machine learning or 
even for DevOps and the DevSecOps, a lot of the automation can be done using uh, Lambda and uh, things like CloudTrail, EventBridge, and so on and so forth. Erica, how did the last five to 10 years of the evolution of cloud and serverless land for you? What was your perspective when this component of the evolution started taking place? For me, it started earlier than that because I started in the web hosting industry. Um, I dropped out of school, got into uh, the web hosting industry and data center providers back in 2001. And you know, I was there running my own web hosting service and building a lot of these cloud type services at the same time that Amazon was. And certainly they were more successful at doing so. But in this last decade, you know, I had leveraged all the experience I had through the 2000s of building clouds and building data centers and took that into building OpenStack and doing contracts for customers, particularly in Korea, but also here domestically in the US to build clouds for people. So I started in the 2000s, at least, with cloud.com buildouts. There was also Eucalyptus and eventually OpenStack. And I became one of the maintainers of the, there was an OpenStack Oslo project, which I was deeply engaged with, where I was building out drivers for inner process communication between the nodes of an OpenStack cluster. And then I went to Docker. And you know that whole process there was just really interesting because there was so much money being spent and a lot of failures, right? There was a lot of money spent failing at doing cloud with companies really trying to catch up with Amazon and will, willing to just throw money at the wall and see what stuck. And I think a lot of that really happened with OpenStack. And OpenStack wasn't just cloud. It was also open source. It was this rebirth of open source in a way where it was such a large project. So much money was put into it. And the way that it created a foundation for its work, you know, that was not the Apache Foundation, was not to say new, but it was definitely influential into things like how Docker chose not to do those same things. And then the Cloud Native Computing Foundation did decide to do a lot of those same things and follow a lot of the same paths that OpenStack tread. So I think that that's for me was a big part of it was just the model, um, the community, and just the, the paradigm that came with building these massive projects in open source. Sick of your laptop overheating every time you try to run your Kubernetes application locally? With Ambassador Telepresence, you can intercept your services on your local machine so that you can develop on your services as if your laptop was running in the cluster. Never worry about running out of memory again, no matter how complex your Kubernetes application gets. Ambassador Telepresence is free to use for teams with unlimited developers. Get started today at getambassador.io slash devdiscuss. New Relic's application monitoring platform gives you detailed performance metrics for every aspect of your software environment. Manage application performance in real time, troubleshoot problems in your stack, and move beyond traditional monitoring with New Relic 1, your complete software observability solution. Get started for free at developer.newrelic.com. To connect with the team behind New Relic directly, join the Relicans. 
The Relicans is a new community hub designed to help developers create cool projects, inspire one another, level up, and learn in public. You can start a discussion about your favorite programming language, ask a question about software observability, share a tutorial, and lots more. Join today at therelicans.com. So a moment ago, Ben sort of gave us a catch-all definition of serverless in the cloud. You know, he said, uh, on someone else's computer. But I want to get into the actual terminology. And Erica, can you explain the difference between serverless and the cloud for our listeners who might not be familiar? So fundamentally, the idea of serverless is really using the cloud for more of the things. (laughs) It is building fewer of the components and systems yourself. I mean, I just spoke about OpenStack and Docker and the open source models that they've encompassed. But one of the things that's really missing in serverless is exactly those things, right? Because it is consuming services that are already pre-baked for you that solve your problems rather than um, necessarily having to build it yourself. And there's a lot of advantages to building it yourself, to participating in the open source world. You know, the Cloud Native uh, Compute Foundation is doing a lot of really fantastic things. I mean, OpenStack still exists. Docker still exists. They're all doing their things. But when you're building on serverless, you're building your application and you're not necessarily managing Kubernetes or Istio or Prometheus or any of these other things. So especially if your your application is simple, you skip a lot of the steps that are necessary, just, you know, groundwork. I mean, you could spend a month setting up a Kubernetes cluster so you could run an application or you could potentially build the application or deploy the application serverlessly in a few days, potentially. At the very least, you know, the level of effort to get started is so much lower just because you're not building the world in order to, you know, to build a building, right? <laughs> so much of that foundation already exists for you. When a developer who came up maybe in the 80s or 90s with a lot of hardware interaction Versus maybe a developer who first got into software, you know, two or three years ago, they went through a boot camp, they've been in software. How does the concept of cloud and serverless sort of interact with each of these two people in terms of, you know, maybe one is more experienced than the other, but also the other one sort of came up in serverless. Do you see like an evolution of serverless and or cloud computing when it's a little bit more normal to be further from the, the hardware? I think there's definitely a stronger tendency, right, for a lot of developers to be going into things like Kubernetes because it does look like a virtualization or a abstraction of your hardware, an abstraction of systems that you're familiar with. I think that a lot of developers, especially those that you know have been doing a lot of front-end work, are less challenged by the serverless paradigm because you're not dealing with managing servers. You're not dealing, like, there's less to learn. So it's easier to learn. It's also restricted in some ways. You can't do everything serverlessly. So you, you can't not do containers or Docker or Kubernetes or anything. Like you, you're going to need these skills eventually, but there's a lot you can do, you can be empowered to do by learning serverless first without learning all of these other things also. And I think that for those that came up longer ago, you know, uh, industry veterans, I could see a perspective that they don't need serverless because they are already, you know, they already know this other way and this well-established way. 
But I think that it would behoove people to learn serverless because it's less to maintain. It's less expensive for many applications. There are certain applications that are massively enabled by this. You know, just the Cloudflare workers, for instance, is immensely popular. Lambda on Edge is a similar solution. Uh, Fastly and others have solutions like this. And these are solutions that don't really have an alternative other than building out infrastructure, right? You can go build out your own edge network. Sure, go ahead and do it. It's going to cost you money. You can build it on top of one of these existing CDNs with custom code components, you know, Lambda Edge or, or Cloudflare Workers, and you're now enabled to do something you couldn't do before. So I think there's value for both, but I think the value is probably a little bit different, right? I think more the veterans are using it as a point solution to solve particular problems where you know newer developers might look at it as an easier way to onboard into building applications. So I think uh, a good rule of thumb is to always be able to understand at least the two layer levels of abstraction beneath the level you actually want to work at. So if you're working with HTTP, you probably want to understand how TCP and IP works. And even if you're using serverless components, you probably should also understand how you know, servers work, uh, how some of the networking stuff work. But at the same time, you don't want to be working at those low level of, of abstractions all the time because they're just not very productive. And certainly, and I think in today's world, where it's becoming more and more competitive, you know, in part thanks to things like the cloud, whereby you know, what used to take six months to do can now be done in a week. And uh, with service comp technologies, that's even more so because there are just so much less things you got to do yourself. And at the end of the day, technology doesn't exist for technology's sake, it exists to advance to create value for businesses. I know there's a lot of uh, veterans who knows how to do this, but at the same time, even if you know how to do this, you know, a lot of these things still take time to do. Would you rather, as a business, would you rather your engineers spend you know, weeks setting up some networking, setting up uh, some, a feed of servers, or would you rather they ship two lines of business code, two lines of JavaScript code, which is all the customer is asking. So I think from a business point of view, serverless makes a lot of sense because it allows your engineers, which are for most companies, the most valuable and expensive resource they have, not the hardware, it's the brains powers that they, they need to you know, pay half a million a year or God knows how much these days uh, uh, engineers go for these days uh, to deliver actual value for the business. And a lot of time, you know, setting up machines and uh, configuring auto scaling, all of that is just not what your customers cares about. Yeah, I, I want to add to this, um, you know, just because you can do something at a lower level uh, does not make you more productive. In fact, and there's also this lock-in myth, I think, that exists around serverless where, like, you can write assembly code, right? And, like, that's many layers of abstraction underneath of so many things that we build, right, as machine code. Uh, you could write machine code, you can write assembly language, but it's not productive to do so generally. And... Furthermore, you're actually locking yourself further in by writing machine code or, or assembly than if you're to write in something like C or Python or Node. And even C, right, you're compiling it into an architecture. You know, we're now currently looking at an x86 to ARM64 migration that's occurring in this industry. And, you know, people who are compiling applications written in compiled languages are, you know, having technical debt now that they need to you know, make build systems that work for multiple architectures, because a lot of people will just hard code in things that are x86-isms. So, you know, you can get more productivity actually by working at these higher, more abstracted layers like serverless. And in some ways, you're actually locked in less because you're not 
presuming behaviors that are particular to the architecture that's underneath of it. You know, when you deploy, you know, Node.js code, it can, doesn't matter if it's ARM or x86 underneath of it when it's serverless. AWS could probably move, you know, their fleet of Lambda services to ARM, and very few customers will be affected. And not to say nobody, but very, very few customers will be affected by that kind of migration on Lambda. Whereas if they were to try that migration on Fargate or EC2, it's a much bigger and more complex migration for those customers. And, you know, here is them, you know, building something in a way that, you know, they may see as more productive or more traditional, but it is actually, you know, more locked in, in a way. Yeah, this whole lock-in argument is just, just such a lazy thing to do uh, <laughs> to drive fear. I mean, you never really locked in. There's always a way out. It's just a question of how much effort you're going to put into when you decide to switch your platform or your uh, decide to go from uh, AWS to GCP. So there is a cost to pay, but there's a lot of companies now spending a lot of uh, effort upfront and engineering time upfront to protect, to hedge against this lock-in risk. And uh, they end up paying a lot of that cost upfront rather than when they have a problem, when they need to switch. And the worst thing is that uh, you end up paying additional uh, costs in terms of uh, how much burden it adds to your engineering team to have to basically run everything themselves. Uh, the moment you decided that we can't be locked into AWS, uh, that means that you can't derive any values from the managed services that the cloud gives you, which is 90% of the of the, the value that you're going to get. It's all the managed services. It's not just renting virtual machines. And as an industry, we sort of copy ourselves a lot from the, manu uh, the, the manufacturing world. Uh, but you know, the manufacturing world used to have this adversary view of the vendors as well, that they didn't trust them. This whole thing about vendor locking is also a thing, but then they realized it just wasn't productive, just not the best use of resources and time. So if you look at the, manage, uh, the manufacturing world now, most of the time, people like Toyota, they will work with a very select uh, num a small number of vendors, and they will try to integrate as tightly with those vendors as possible so that they can get the maximum value from those vendors, to from those relationships, and it becomes a, a partnership rather than, okay, we always worry about the, what if our vendors try to do us over. And I think a lot of companies in the service world certainly understands that, understand the value the cloud is going to give them, and it's, it's in taking more and using more of it, as uh, Erica said at the start, that, uh, and that's where they're going to get the most value. And when you look at the, the real risk most companies face, it's not, okay, what if uh, uh, AWS decides to, I don't know, to, um, kill some service? That's, uh, that's a Google thing. <laughs> and uh, the, the real risk is uh, if you have a competitor that can iterate faster than you, then you're going to lose out the market before anything else happens to you because AWS or, some, or Google or Amazon, this, uh, or sorry, or Microsoft decide to do something. So clearly there's a lot to consider, you know, with the technologies and the different vendors involved in this industry. Can we maybe go through like a really quick like exercise, like do some rapid fire definitions of some of the uh, words I heard you all share just now? Maybe we can go one by one. Um, and Erica, if you want to start, could you tell us what a container is? That's easy and complicated. It is... <laughs> It is both a process model for running applications on a server, but it's also a way of packaging applications in a way that makes them portable between systems. And Yen, what is a virtual machine? Uh, a virtual machine is... Uh, how, can, how can I explain that without saying virtual machine? <laughs> I can take it if you want. <laughs> yeah, Erica, do you have a better definition? 
So like containers, it is a different process model for running your applications on your server. But instead of running on the CPU within its normal domain, the CPU basically steps back and says, this is like the real machine is really underneath, you know, it's in the basement, right? Because normally machines like hardware machines were like everything was on the ground floor. And then with virtual machines, they moved all the logic into the basement. And then they said, now you can have rooms on the first floor. <laughs> <laughs> I love that metaphor. That's great. Um, yeah. And what is Kubernetes? The worst thing that's been invented. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> so, so when you so Kubernetes is one of the um, so when you're working with containers, uh, one of the so you can't just have uh, like one container. So if that container dies, so your application essentially dies. So you can't have that. So you still need to have a high availability setup where you need to have multiple containers, and you need some way to be able to allocate containers to your virtual machines and have different strategies to maximize uh, efficiency for. How close, you know, how tightly you pack those uh, uh, containers so that you maximize the resource, the utilization of resources you have, and uh, routing traffic to the right container, and so on and so forth. So that's where you need, uh, I guess, a bit more than just uh, containers themselves. You need some abstraction layer that manage all your container infrastructure. And uh, Kubernetes is one of the container schedulers that you can have. But seriously, it's such a complicated piece of tech that you. You spend so much time just tinkering and then tweeting with um, Kubernetes and very little time to actually just go and build your application. So for most companies, I would say it's a terrible choice uh, for you to go <laughs> Kubernetes. Thank you for the editorialized version of the definition. <laughs> um, ben, do you have any uh, terminology that you would like to find? Yeah, let's go to Erica for a definition of uh, CDNs and or edge compute. So CDNs at their core tend to provide caching of your resources at various edge endpoints around the world. So those edge endpoints basically just means it's close to you. If you have a service or like some content that is in, let's say, Virginia, if somebody asks for it out of, say, Australia, where there's a very large latency between these two points, the person in Australia can request it from a server in Australia which may or may not have that data cached. But hopefully if there's lots of users in Australia, it will cache that data so that those lookups are not going across the oceans, but are actually staying local to Australia. And then the edge compute says, well, great, now when that data and content is there, it's easier to act on the data where it is. So rather than when you have to compute on that data and, and run, compute tasks on it, you can't cache computed content. So rather than going all the way back to the US, it says, well, why don't we embed a little bit of compute in here and you just make your application itself more distributed and distributing your, your code with the content that is being cached and distributed in these large CDN networks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and can you give us a definition of AWS Fargate? Yeah, sure. Fargate is uh, uh, what AWS would call a technology that runs on top of ECS, uh, which is the Elastic uh, Container Service. So basically, uh, Fargate is a way for you, to, I guess, to simplify running containers uh, with ECS, uh, which is a Elastic Container Service, uh, whereby you don't have to maintain uh, and run your own EC2 cluster so that you ECS can allocate containers uh, in you know, um, a runtime. Uh, instead, uh, they would just you just uh, specify 
a task. Uh, so what you, you know, what containers you need, uh, the amount of memory, the amount of CPU resources, and so on, and uh, what to run on them, and the Docker image that you want to run, and that they will manage the provisioning of that uh, resource for you on the virtual machines that the AWS is managing for you. In a way, they they kind of like to call it the serverless container, whereby you minimize the amount of, uh, I guess, infrastructure that you have to manage in order to run containers. All right. So we actually have like a long list of a bunch of AWS services, all of which are interesting to define, but I don't think we need to get through our entire list we have here. But let me finish off by throwing the definition of managed service over to Erica. Well, I think we have to start with the definition of service. So if you have a service, it's something that's provided to you. Really, a managed service is just one that you're not running yourself. So a service might be like you build a web service which serves web pages. A managed web service would be one where somebody runs that application for you and you provide the content for that service potentially uh, or the data for it, but somebody else runs the actual code. So through our conversation, we learned a little bit about the history of the cloud and uh, where we are today. But what do you two think the future of all this looks like? Uh, Yen, why don't you start? Will, you know, will most companies be serverless in the future? Definitely don't think serverless is uh, right for every company. Uh, I certainly had the very strong opinions about uh, using things like Kubernetes. Uh, but certain companies, they do need it. Uh, I mean, serverless is great and all, but at some point, uh, you know, when you're paying for someone to manage the infrastructure for you, there is going to be a premium. So for systems that are really high throughput, you may also just find that that cost of running stuff on serverless components are just too high. So if you look at someone like Netflix, if they move everything, actually I spoke with some of the guys at Netflix before, they weren't really interested in the Lambda, but they did some back of the napkin calculation and found that if they run everything at Netflix on Lambda, they would uh, it would cost them seven times as much which uh, you know, when you add that, that scale is uh, pretty significant. But at the same time, for lots of companies uh, and for lots of different workloads within even large companies, uh, service did the, the right fit. So I certainly think the, the right mindset to think about this would be to adopt what we you know, like to call serverless first, that you try to build things in a serverless way. And uh, if you can't, uh, well, until you can't, then you move things back into containers and virtual machines so I don't think, no, I don't think serverless is going to be the only way, but I certainly think uh, there should be a much healthier, I guess, the proportion of applications being built serverlessly compared to what we're seeing just yet. And also, I do think that in the future, you're going to find uh, many of the, you know, I guess, uh, container features into the serverless uh, space and vice versa. You know, Fargate and Cloud Run from Google, they all kind of, sort of guess, uh, blurring the line between the between run, you know, running well, things with service components versus uh, running containers. And Erica, where do you think we're going with all of this? You know, I felt like when Docker was happening, I knew it was a revolution. I knew that things were changing. You know, Kubernetes came after, serverless came after-ish. And I think that machine learning is going to start taking a bigger part of what we're doing. But I think also more and more people are recognizing the constraints of those machine learning models and the ethics of doing so, of running and doing machine learning. But I do think it will become a bigger part of what we're doing and how we're doing it. I think that ARM is going to be a significant change on the server side. And I think it's a change that will be easier than it could have been a long time ago, just because we have so many high-level level languages and high-level things building. And 
Well, actually, these two things I'm talking about are actually deeply related because NVIDIA is now uh, currently in the position of attempting to acquire ARM. And NVIDIA is the largest uh, semiconductor uh, manufacturer of machine learning compute you know, chips. And ARM is in all of your phones. It's in more and more servers. It's even going to be on a desktop. Uh, by the end of this year, Apple will be coming out with an ARM-based laptop. So I think ARM is going to be a big thing in the next few years, machine learning. And the fact that NVIDIA is going to own manufacturing for these, or at least licensing for these technologies, is going to be extremely impactful. I don't know what the impacts of that are going to be quite yet, but I'm really curious to see what's going to happen with it. Chances are, like other software developers, you learn better by doing than just watching. Unfortunately, most online learning platforms still have you passively sit through videos instead of actually getting your hands dirty. Educative.io is different. Their courses are interactive and hands-on with live coding environments inside your browser so you can practice as you go. They're also text-based, meaning you can skim back and forth like a book to the parts you're interested in. Step up your learning in 2021. Visit educative.io slash devdiscuss today to get a free preview and 10% off of an annual subscription. A common scene in technology companies everywhere. Big conference table with the CTO on one end, developer teams on the other, the showdown. We have an idea, will it get funded? More companies are feeling the pressure to go faster and stay ahead of the competition. Projects that have long timelines or no immediate impact are hard to justify. Datastax is sponsoring a contest with real projects, real money, and real CTOs. If you have a Kubernetes project that needs a database, the winner will get funded with a free year of Datastax Astra. Follow the link in the podcast description to submit your project. It's time to impress the CTO and get your project funded. Now we're going to move into a segment where we look at responses that you, the audience, have sent us to a question we made in relation to this episode. The question we asked you was, what do you wish you knew about serverless and the cloud? Our first response was from Jerry L, who wrote in, what would a personal project in serverless and cloud computing look like? Since there's always a pricing model for these service platforms, how do you effectively learn these tools without incurring massive costs? Okay, uh, I guess um, you know, for personal projects, the chances are uh, it's going to be free because uh, all of these services has got a free tier. And uh, since uh, the you know, the pricing model for serverless is, uh, you know, you pay for what you use. So when you don't use it, then the, you don't pay for it. In fact, for not just for personal projects, for a lot of actual commercial projects, uh, you may find that your dev environments and things like that, they're also essentially free because there's basically no traffic, not enough to, t to uh, take you out of the, the free tier anyway. So that's also one of the benefits uh, of serverless is the fact that you don't, you know, it's, it's pay as you go. Your uh, response was a perfect segue into a comment from Basti, which was, the pricing model for various cloud services have always confused me. 
the pay-for-what-you-use model is often ambiguously worded with terms like microcents per minute and whatnot. What does it mean to charge per minute? Does it take into account the total time a service is idle? Or does it take into account the total time it took to process all requests within a month? Or perhaps the price reflects the total uptime of the service itself within a month? It would be great to clear up some of these ambiguities in the computation of processing minutes, especially when there are some gotchas involved. Um, unfortunately, there's just uh, no easy answer for that. And I guess uh, when you're talking about the uh, paying for uptime, those are typically, you know, you're talking about serverful services, uh, not serverless <laughs> services, uh, uh, where you're paying for uptime of how long you're running uh, an EC2 instance, for example, or how long you have uh, a, a VPC you know, running of um, or application load balancer or whatnot. And the the, the unfortunate thing is that uh, uh, some of those uh, nuances that uh, they are all different per service. Uh, this and it's not always clear, even for people who's been using it for a very long time, uh, exactly you know <laughs> exactly how they calculate it. And the different uh, cloud provider, different services may have a slightly different uh, caveats. So, for example, for EC2, Erica, I don't know if uh, if I'm still right with this. Uh, I think EC2 is charging you by the second. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Yep. Yeah, whereas before it used to be round up to the to the to the next hour. Uh, whereas with you know, Lambda, you're paying for how long your function actually runs for. So if your code runs for five milliseconds, uh, you pay for hundred milliseconds of compute time. But yeah, so un unfortunately, there's uh, there's no I guess one one answer that can uh, uh, that can clarify all of them. Yeah, I will also add, don't forget your network requests. And honestly, the most expensive thing for me on AWS is always networking. Because to build your application correctly, if you're not built, if you're building serverful, is going to be your load balancers. It's going to be VPC connections. I mean, I spend, I, I think, like I configured an application correctly the way it should be configured, quote unquote. I was paying over hundred dollars a month just to have like a base networking stack, and it's really not sustainable. I think to do that, but I think. This is a complex topic. Something that would be worthwhile is maybe following Corey Quinn on Twitter because he's like the AWS billing expert. Oh yeah, and, and Corey had I uh, heard uh, one podcast uh, where uh, where uh, where Corey actually mentioned one client of his uh, where they were paying some some ridiculous amounts. It was, it was something that in the in the region of like a couple hundred thousand dollars a month or, or, or per quarter for a net gateway. Because uh, this is a system that was sending out mass amount of data out of the VPC, and they're using that gateway, which charges you by the gigabytes. So when you don't have a lot of traffic, it's great, it's cheap. You're not paying for uptime, but when you've got a lot of throughput, uh, it gets really, really expensive. And I think uh, he basically brought that uh, cost down to almost nothing by just moving them to using that instances uh, from uh, the AWS marketplace. Uh, so that's uh, especially we we've run the um, uh, around the networking. There's a lot of uh, cost gotchas that can really, really, really hurt you. I think it's also important to note that the way serverless or cloud computing is priced is a totally made up paradigm. The rules can be set by whoever you know is the decision maker for that product and that company and and everything. And if it's not coming intuitively to you. It's probably because this isn't necessarily intuitive stuff. Like it's a communication thing. You have, as we talked about, we have experts in billing alone. Uh, there's new concepts even that are coming out in terms of like cost management services for clouds, like independent companies whose, whose only job is to kind of help be an abstraction layer over top of the pricing models. So 
I don't think there's any shame in sort of feeling like it's it's more difficult than you'd think or just because you know how to do the coding that the the pricing stuff is going to be easy because it's its own you know complex universe yep absolutely 100 <laughs> percent all right this was a really fun conversation uh, thank you both for your insights and uh for joining us today thank you thanks for having us thank everyone who sent in responses. For all of you listening, please be on the lookout for our next question. We'd especially love it if you would dial into our Google Voice. The number is international code 1-929-500-1513. Or you can email us a voice memo so we can hear your responses in your own beautiful voices. This show is produced and mixed by Levi Sharp. Editorial oversight by Peter Frank and Saran Yabarik. Our theme song is by Slow Biz. If you have any questions or comments, please email pod at dev.to and make sure to join our Dev Discuss Twitter chats on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Or if you want to start your own discussion, write a post on Dev using the hashtag discuss. Please rate and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts.